Welcome to Healthcare Rounds. I'm your host, John Marchica, CEO of Darwin Research Group and faculty associate at the Arizona State University College of Health Solutions. Here we explore the vast and rapidly evolving healthcare ecosystem with leaders across the spectrum of healthcare delivery. Our goal is to promote ideas that advance the quadruple aim, including improving the patient experience, improving the health of populations, lowering the cost of care, and attaining joy in work. Please send your questions, comments, or ideas for Healthcare Rounds to podcast at darwinresearch.com. And if you like what you hear, please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get started. Today on Healthcare Rounds, John speaks with Spencer Hutchins, CEO and co-founder of Concert Health, America's leading behavioral health medical group with a turnkey solution designed for primary care and women's health physicians. Concert Health's exceptional team of clinicians deliver collaborative care management, an evidence-based model proven to treat anxiety, depression, and other behavioral health conditions. Prior to Concert Health, Spencer co-founded Reflection Health, where he served as CEO for three years. Spencer also previously served as Senior Director at West Health, where he helped source and support investments in innovate companies such as Humedica, Change Healthcare, and GoBalto. Spencer has also served as a member of the founding healthcare team at the Federal Communications Commission during the Obama administration. Spencer received an MBA from Yale School of Management and a BA from Colby College. So, um, Spencer, thanks for taking some time today to, to speak with me. I appreciate it. And I'm sure our audience will uh, appreciate learning more about behavioral health and also about your organization. Um, by the magic of podcast recording by now whoever's listening will have heard kind of a stilted bio (laughs) um, about you um but so tell me let's do it in your words and before we get to concert health tell me about about your your bio and some of the things that you were working on in your past sure uh well thanks so much for having me excited to have this conversation um I've been living and working at the intersection of healthcare and technology for a little bit better than 15 years or trained in business school. uh, And then, um, you know, started my career on the East Coast doing advisory work, both for big companies as a management consultant, and then taking periodic breaks to do public service work. Um, So it was in the first term of the Obama administration, helping start a healthcare team at the Federal Communications Commission. And uh, then found my way to San Diego a little better than a decade ago um, and a family office that was investing in early stage companies and a medical research organization helping to do innovation around lowering the total cost of care. Um, and that, that got my juices flowing and, and loved the early stage innovation world. And so uh, for the last 10 years, I've been founding and running companies and Concert Health is my, uh, the second one that I founded as the CEO. So um, I'm always interested in, and we talked a little bit about this in our earlier conversation, but I'm always interested in, in entrepreneur origin stories. And we all have them. I have mine, although sometimes I think people don't view us as being a market research company as an entrepreneurial yeah. effort, but it is. Um, so what led to the creation of Concert Health? What inspired you? You know, give me, give me the, uh, as I said, the origin story. Yeah, the company, it's, you know, I, I, I think it's a couple of veins coming together. Uh, the first one was my first company, Reflection Health, um, was uh, trying to disrupt 
the world of physical therapy using a software application that that uh, utilized sort of a camera that underlies Microsoft's Connect camera to build an immersive at-home physical therapy experience for folks that were prepared for recovering from joint replacements. And we, when we start and had a lot of success with that, you know, got FDA clearance, got some really marquee customers, ended up having a nice exit. But from the beginning, always we pre-conceptualized that as it had to be a software company. That was what we were building. That was what it needed. That's what investors wanted to do. That's what you did when you moved to California, you created a software company. And we're always hit into this. Well, the software was amazing, but it was really how it interacted with great clinicians that created the value. Right. And it's how orthopedic surgeons, physical therapists and their team could reconceptualize what a joint replacement was or what a knee injury was using this sort of immersive at home experience for patients as an important part of care. And we're always going back and forth with, oh, you know, software is supposed to be scalable. Uh, but then you had to get into, well, how are, you know, how are physical therapists compensated? Because sometimes if their department compensates them by visit and you're saying, hey, good, good news is I can get rid of 70% of the visits, you actually have to help them on their, in the way they're compensating their team, the way they're conceptualizing their own KPIs. Sure. And we're running into that. So when I left and uh, left that business and, and, and I was addicted to starting another one, said, you know, let's just solve a problem and build the organization required to solve that problem and not be enamored um, with um, uh, the type of organization it had to be at the beginning. Um, and then I didn't have a deep background professionally in behavioral health as a space other than knowing it over 15 year career as one of those places that gets talked about is even more broken. Um, mm -hmm. And as a person had seen both how transformative great behavioral health support can be for people I really know and love and just how easy it was in this country not to get it. Um, and so when I stumbled upon a research base around this care model called collaborative care, which is a evidence-based way of integrating behavioral health services into primary care, it not only made so much sense, right? Of course, that should all happen together. You know, now it seems obvious, but, um, and even back then it seemed obvious that it was talked about a little bit less in 2016 when I was researching this, that um, of course, primary care and your behavioral health support needs to be integrated, right? Your depression doesn't exist separately from your obesity or your blood pressure or your diabetes. Um, they often co-mingle sure. um, and, and you really need that team to come together. But not only did it make a lot of sense, but it had a huge amount of research behind it uh, that showed that um, uh, it could demonstrate better outcomes, lower total cost of care than primary care by itself or even outpatient behavioral health by itself. And that's when I got fascinated, but also knew that to do this well, we'd have to build a lot of great software, uh, but we also actually needed to build a medical group, right? And actually employ really, really talented uh, behavioral health clinicians and psychiatrists. And, and as I got excited, that's also when I knew that I was only half of the founding team. So I had to go find myself a real amazing clinical operator and, and was really lucky to find Verna Little, who became my co-founder and Concert Health's chief operating officer. And Verna's a psychologist and social worker that's that's been doing this for 15 years um, in a federally qualified health clinic. Um, and so finding a way to sort of bring her expertise, her operational and clinical credibility into a high growth um, um, new co mindset um, as we uh, tried to uh, change the way the behavioral health delivered across the country. Was uh, was she willing and able, or did you have to twist her arm a few times to pull her away from her, what she was doing? You know, it was funny. So I, I learned about collaborative care and, and was fascinated by it. We can go into detail in the clinical model if that's interesting, but um, I, you know, I was, I was starting to do all the things you do when there's a great 
um, model, but no good revenue model um, in healthcare, which is, oh, maybe you pitch this to self-insured employers, right? Maybe the VA, right? where are places that have the right economics um, to do this? That's when I found out that Medicare was going to make collaborative care a covered benefit. Um, mm. And that's when the light went off and said, oh, if we let every primary care team figure this out on their own, it's going to take 30 years and they're going to mess it up. So we need a, an easy button, a, a peer medical group that could support them, deliver great care together um, and make the revenue model work together. Um, but to do that, I knew I needed someone. I knew how to start things. I knew how to sell things. I knew how to build technology teams, but I sure didn't know how to run medical groups. So I needed that. Um, and I started mm. asking everybody I'd met. Um, and a and said, who's the best clinical operator in the country? Um, and, um, you know, ivory tower research is nice, but it can't just be that I need a doer, a builder. Right. And, and so sure. a bunch of people gave me Verna's name and one was silly enough to give me her cell phone. And so uh, <laughs> I called her out of the blue. I still don't quite know why she picked up my cell phone call. Um, year, a couple of years later, I found out she was gardening at the time. And, I knew she had forgotten more about collaborative care that week than I had yet learned. So I didn't tell her anything you know, about that. I thought I had this information that this new guidance coming from Medicare and she knew about it already. She'd been part of the advisory uh, panel that was pushing it and advocating it, but she had the same job for 15 years. Um, so saw the same opportunity, but didn't know what a startup was, or, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, how would I pay for my kid's college doing this? So um, agreed to, um, I think she was on board conceptually, but, but, um, I needed some coaxing. And so I, fortunately she agreed to spend an afternoon with me if I flew out to New York. And so, uh, um, cross-country flight, uh, preposterously priced. Cause I think I bought it on about 48 hours notice went out and we met Ouch. and, you know, a two hour meeting came, you know, became a seven hour meeting, uh, and left and, and with her starting as an advisor, as we waited for these things to come together. And then once we had the 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 guidance out and the the model built um you know i spent some time selling it in the phoenix area where we started um and then she came on full-time as a coo once we got it going i want to get into the the model and and a little bit more about um you know kind of those nitty-gritty details but i want to ask kind of a a thirty thousand foot question and you kind of alluded to this earlier but i feel like i feel like behavioral health is kind of a maligned industry um, and, and certainly that people's needs are just not being met to your point earlier. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, I, I interview health system executives for a living and when behavioral health comes up, um, it's almost like they want to change the subject, you know, like they don't, they, they understand that it's important. They understand the comorbidity issue, but they're not tackling it head on. So I just wanted you to just take a step back before we get into the collaborative care model and give me your assessment of the industry today and, uh, and, and how we're meeting the needs of, of patients, people. Yeah, we made a terrible decision a long time ago, decades ago, to think about it as a different industry than medical, right? As if the medical system and the behavioral system are separate. Um, that created resistance stigma, funding coordination problems. I think in many ways, fortunately, a lot of those are falling away in the broader population. I think people are waking up, more and more prominent people are standing forward and admitting their own struggles. And that's causing more acceptance from people that says, hey, I need this help. My, my friends and family need this help. This is something that matters and I care about. Um, there's a growing awareness from large health systems. Um, although many made that same decision 
years and years ago that I don't do that. That's a different industry. Or uh, some of the bigger hospital-based systems, maybe they do the acute side. They have an inpatient psychiatric uh, facility or some high acuity settings, but they've never done outpatient behavioral health. They don't employ a lot of th therapists or outpatient psychiatrists. Um, so I think there is a growing awareness um, of uh, of the needs, um, uh, they you know their their primary care physicians, their ED physicians are saying this is a huge need. I can't get patients in. I don't feel confident in my own ability to manage these on my own with my current resources. Um, I think also health systems though are looking at it and saying, listen, whenever we try these things, we lose money, right? We're, we're it's not our expertise. Right. Um, we've never figured out how to employ these. It's a different type of professional. We don't know how to do it. It's kind of traditionally been a different type of billing. And so I think you see a, a, a giant need um, coming from them, from their boards, their newspapers, their clinicians, and, and themselves, the leaders I think want to solve this problem, but they've never thought of it as their core core competence. And I think that's an issue in which is one reason why sometimes you're seeing more talk than action right now, because uh, of that underneath the curtains, it goes, man, whenever we, whenever we build new service lines here, they're the ones that, that uh, lose money or, or have high turnover. And we don't, we don't have the ability to manage them effectively. So is it a consequence? Let me ask this a different way. Um, because one of the things that we're seeing in our, our most recent research as health systems really starting to emphasize primary care. Mm -hmm. And we haven't gotten underneath the why of that. It's just, you know, kind of on a latest quantitative survey, it, it popped up on the radar as being a, um, a major strategic priority. But is it, like the, the ones that are managing the risk, thinking about Intermountain, Kaiser, Geisinger, do they do a better job because they're thinking about the total cost of care? Yeah, absolutely. I think on on average they do. Um, much of the early uh, research for collaborative care, Kaiser was a lot of the early sites for the original randomized control studies because hmm. they were one of the few organizations that had kind of the whole dollar, right? Um, and we're looking right. at it. And and you know, I think whether or not you're talking about full risk in a Medicare Advantage or ACO context and the direct contracting models or other places in which you're trying to bring that total cost of care angle. I think that um, all of those groups on the forefront are saying that behavioral health integration is going to be um, a top five lever you know, to, to win and be successful there, right? When they look at the underlying, um, and, and it's normally not, um, you know, one problem by dividing behavioral as if it was a different industry is that folks that managed behavioral health risk have traditionally really managed high acuity psychiatric settings, right? So they've just been trying to make sure there's not too many psych bed days, right? right. Uh, that's important work, um, um, uh, you know, um, but nervous grandmothers with COPD, they don't go to psychiatric hospitals, but their underlying anxiety disorder is what causes them to go to the emergency department nine times that year, because when they're, when they can't breathe well, uh, from their COPD, it sort of exacerbates with an uncontrolled anxiety disorder and creates panic attacks. Right. So anybody that's managing behavioral health in a silo says, well, that's not me. That's a medical problem. That's COPD, uh, ED utilization, hospital utilization. But I think anybody that's taking the full patient look and can see all of that says, no, no, no. I, part of my lever here is yes, getting them on the right meds for COPD, but is absolutely supporting them to make sure that they have reduced anxiety symptoms or there's no way we're ever going to keep these, keep this person out of the emergency department. So that was a perfect segue into understanding uh, 
your model and and the application of the collaborative care model. So can you go a little yeah. bit deeper into that? Sure. So the vast majority of our team members are licensed behavioral health providers or psychiatrists or psychiatric nurse practitioners. Um, the behavioral care manager, um, so those are uh, licensed behavioral health providers like clinical social workers, marriage and family therapists, professional clinical counselors. Uh, we've got uh, better than 100 of those now. Uh, we, we operate across uh, eight states. Um, they mostly work from home and do care remotely, although some of them actually co-locate into our primary care and women's health partners offices. And basically, we operate as a, as a real extension of that primary care team. Um, so, um, and, and encourage the primary care offices to make a couple of workflow changes. So the first is to screen for everybody um, using these basic tools. Like there's a nine question a tool called the PHQ-9, which mm -hmm. is common. And those are really important because we know half, probably about half the people that present um, uh, don't bring up depression. And it's not obvious that they have it in a seven minute encounter. Maybe it's because they don't realize it or because they're sort of hiding from it um, or think the depression happens to other people. And these basic survey tools that kind of ask you, hey, in the last two weeks, how often have you had trouble sleeping or eating, have been low energy, isolating yourself, or, or even had thoughts that you'd be uh, better off dead, um, that can help capture a lot of those people that aren't going to bring it up, aren't going to present. Um, the second is providing an opportunity for that physician to do a warm handoff. So whether or not, if I imagine I'm the patient, whether or not I present because I screened positive on that PHQ-9 and maybe an email the day before my PCP's visit or in the, in the office, or just because I bring it up or my PCP notices it, she's now left with a new option, which is um, um, before collaborative care, she'd say, hey, Spencer, here's a med, and I think you should go see a therapist. So it would help you a lot. But she knows probably not even gonna follow up. And even if I do, I probably can't find one that takes my insurance, right? So 70, 80, maybe even 90% of the time, I never get connected to other services. And maybe I come back in to tell her how the antidepressant's making me feel, but she doesn't have the support around to really track me, right? And so right. You're, we're often relying a lot on patients to say, come back in if you need help, right? And we're putting all the onus on that patient. In a collaborative care model, She's got a partnered behavioral care manager and she could tell me, you know, Spencer, I work really closely with a, a woman named Danny. I'd love Danny to call you today or tomorrow. And she helps support a lot of my patients struggling with these same things, you know, whether or not that be sleep issues or energy or nerves, grief. And uh, what Danny does is check in with you at least a couple of times a month, just see how things are going. She measures your symptom severity, just like we did today, because we track this to make sure we're getting better, just like we would your, your blood pressure, or your sugars. And she's got some coping techniques. She teaches my patients they find really helpful um, and how to overcome those symptoms when you feel them coming. And she keeps me totally on the loop on how things are going. And, and, um, and so we can really make sure that we support you, you know, through this. And so instead of 80% of people not taking that, 70, 80% of the people will say, that sounds great, right? This is just part of an expanded primary care team. Danny, though, is a licensed marriage and family therapist, and, and she reaches out. We try to always maintain same day or next day access, and often talking to patients by video or phone, whichever they prefer, over the course of that month, several times a month, really doing a spectrum of what the patient wants and needs. Um, Danny uh, could do full-on traditional psychotherapy interventions like cognitive behavioral therapy or much lighter touch med rec, you know, go, um, uh, symptom monitoring. If all I want or need is to take the medication and see how that works. Often doing something in the middle, maybe something that I wouldn't describe as therapy. I'd say Danny's helping me exercise more or Danny's making sure I'm connecting with my 
my uh, parents or my my family more more frequently or my friends more frequently. Help me set goals and just live healthier. Now, what she's doing is an evidence-based behavioral activation intervention. But if a patient doesn't want to call that therapy, that's fine. Right? It's not about labels; it's about outcome. Um, and then what so, each Spencer, of our Danny's is doing. Yep. Let me interrupt you one second. Yep. Um, and then and then you know finish your thought. But it strikes me that the way that you described what was going on, you know, kind of playing doctor there. Um, was entirely non-threatening, um, was not in any way stigmatizing. Do, do you have to coach the primary care offices that you work in, the physicians and the NPs that you work with on how to frame it? Because it seems that that makes all the difference. Absolutely. I mean, you're you're seeing resistance in the patient population fall. So sometimes you don't need to frame it at all, right? Hey, I want a therapist. Great. I've got one that I can get you into in the next day. That sounds amazing. But I think for populations that are more resistant, that's more likely to be with um, rural or older populations, but really it can happen everywhere. Um, absolutely, that coaching is important. And really what collaborative care is about is saying, this isn't something else, this isn't behavioral, this is primary care, right? Primary care physicians do, uh, they support your weight gain, right? They support your, you know, pre-diabetes and early type two diabetes. They support your asthma and your COPD, and they've got to support your mood in the same way, right? And your depression, anxiety, other conditions. And it's just, this is how primary care should have always been practiced, right? With the right team, with the right number of resources that you're able to track this stuff and really have a team-based approach. And I think that that can make it much less threatening. And you need to do some training, but a lot of times PCPs get this quickly. Like they understand it, they know their patients well, and they've just never had a partner on the behavioral health side that could be there that would have access that would be kind of an extension of their team. And so it's often a revelation for them and something they get really excited about. You know, one thing you find they're often an ally for us as part of the partnership, the sales conversation early, you know, the physician voice, but always once we're there, because once they've kind of tasted this kind of access and partnership, it's like, man, they never go back because this is kind of, this is what they got into primary care for. It's the kind of team-based patient-centric care that everyone wants to provide. It must've been a big decision, getting back to the business here, it must've been a big decision to, um, to go the employment model. Um, rather than just putting together some kind of ragtag network, yep. again, focusing more on maybe the technology rather than the implementation. At the same time, you know, you're incurring a lot of costs. So was that a tough choice in the very beginning? Or did you know that, hey, this is what this is the only way that this model is going to work is if we have an employment model? Yeah, we, we talked about it a lot. But I think we I think Vern and I both had a really conviction that um, the old model of, of uh, network um, that, you know, the legacy players like a Magellan or a Beacon had done, they just weren't cutting it and they never were because um, one, it was more optimized for paper adequacy, right? Um, and second, the core to collaborative care is really getting people to change the way they practice. It's a more measurement-based approach, right? To, to then traditional outpatient uh, therapy. The psychiatrists are there not as direct prescribers, right? Not as direct, they're more there as coach, right? For the care manager and, and PCP making recommendations based on the, on the data from this registry um, and weekly consultations they have. And so you really needed to create exceptional professional experiences for both talented behavioral health providers and talented psychiatrists. And we thought from the beginning, that was a level of oversight, a level of um, training 
that was critical. And really what you don't have in behavioral health is this generalized market failure. It's not like you have a bunch of psychiatrists and therapists with not enough work to do and a bunch of patients that need help and you just need matchmaking, right? Um, uh, you know, it's, it's not a failure of just, oh, we're not connecting well. It's that we haven't architected the outpatient behavioral health system to address the needs. And to do that, you really have to find great people and create great professional experiences for them. So, you know, one of our core values that we wrote on uh, on a piece of paper, right, when we were getting going was service. Obviously, most importantly, is service to our patients. Um, almost as importantly to that is the service to the primary care physicians who are, um, uh, uh, you know, allowing us to be on their team, right, to join this team. Um, and to do that, it was about creating you know, a team of exceptional clinicians and the rest of us that aren't in frontline clinical roles, all we do is try to make the lives of our clinicians better. So, you know, a line we, I forget when we started to use this phrase, but it was, it was implicit from the beginning is that our clinicians needed to be the core of the organization, not part of the product, right? And I think that's really, that's really guided us from the beginning. So I'm sure you get this, asked this question a lot, Spencer, but uh, what have you been able to measure in terms of outcomes? And the model sounds, model is evidence-based to your point, yep. um, and it should be performing better, but are you asked by payers or other, other folks to be able to demonstrate that you're, you're being uh, effective in what you do and cost-effective? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's built into our DNA from the beginning and it comes directly out of the research around this uh of collaborative care and we measure the north star clinical measure is called a 90-day improvement rate right and so that's what percentage of patients from that warm handoff or from that positive screen have seen a 50 percent or 10 point reduction in their depression or anxiety symptoms as measured by those tools the phq9 and the gad7 and in general primary care even at a year it's only about 20 percent of people have seen really substantial improvements. So that's that 50% reduction in symptoms. In the collaborative care research literature, normally 50% is considered a success. And we've been fortunate to be a little above that research benchmark. So about 60, 61% of our patients historically have been able to see that 50% reduction in symptoms inside of 90 days. Wow. Um, we're increasingly trying to align around uh, additional measures, which are similar. HEDIS has a few, ACS has a few sort of process-based measurements of screening uh, and response rate. Uh, there's another antidepressant medication management, you know, that we're increasingly trying to get our arms around and show that we can move the needle. Um, and out of the research, it's shown that when you manage that intermediate metric, right, that 90-day improvement rate, not only is that a phenomenal way to imperfect but 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 phenomenal way to measure just a reduction in human suffering right that means that you're sort of saying you know 90 days ago you said hey every night i can't sleep and now you're saying it's not a problem or it's only a problem you know a couple days you know out of that month or right. or i used to have thoughts that i'd be better off dead i don't have those thoughts anymore right i used to have energy problems i used to isolate and i don't anymore those are that's phenomenal by itself and we always like to cherish that as a as a measure um uh, regardless of anything else, but also what the research has shown, when you, when you have that type of impact on the depression anxiety symptoms, you also see a, a reduction in total cost of care. That's the element that we haven't shown with our own data yet, just because of how you, new we are, but we're increasingly focused on, particularly with our systems that are already taking risk or, or, or have their own plan, which means they're both incentivized around those total cost of care measures, and they have access to the claims data, the cost data that allows us to tell that story. So, you know, I think we'll be increasingly focused on that over the next few years 
as we continue to scale with some of our biggest and most sophisticated partners. So, so last question, I was going to ask you about sort of like the big picture of where behavioral health is heading, but after talking to you now for a half an hour or so, I'm, uh, I'm really interested just to see where Concert Health is going in the next three to five years. What do you see the vision for, for your company for the future? Well, we just took care of our 10,000th patient last uh, in December. Congratulations. Um, and we'll do several multiples of that um, this year. Uh, so we're just on absolute growth tear, which is exciting. But there's not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions. There's tens of millions of Americans that need this kind of support um, and aren't getting it right now. And so there's just an enormous need uh, to scale and to do this across uh, more and more medical groups, more and more health systems to help them build it, whether or not they work with us or do it themselves. Uh, we just think that's critical. And there's, there's an enormous need. Um, but, and, and just fidelity to the existing research model um, is really powerful. But underlying that research model is really bringing this engineering mindset to care and behavioral health, which means you always have to measure because we know we have a lot of evidence-based interventions, but we know they're all imperfect. In reality, our, our understanding of the brain chemistry underneath depression and anxiety and other behavioral health conditions is still so preliminary. And so I think you need to take that mindset. You know, Right now, it's mostly psychotherapy interventions or medication interventions. It'll increasingly, and it already is starting to be digital interventions, digital therapeutics, right? But you'll need that type of mindset across primary care. Um, so we think of it, collaborative care is a really way to redefine what primary care means um, and, mm. and uh, to be effective. And we think that'll be huge. It also oper creates a, a scaffolding, an infrastructure that helps identify patients that maybe have different or more acute needs. Hopefully you catch them earlier in the progression, and then you can rationalize the referral pathways out of primary care into that specialty setting to, to both uh, be a kind of step up and a step down care. So if we do our job right, you know, we'll be um, caring for an enormous number of patients. Hopefully we'll be the trusted partner for the best primary care teams, best women's health teams, best pediatricians in the country. Um, and we'll have an opportunity to really figure out a way to uh, both catch those half the people that need care like this um, and aren't getting it, and also bring a outcome focus to, to that whole industry, which is something like $200 billion in spend um, across the country now. Wow. Well, Spencer Hutchins, it's been great, and I've enjoyed talking to you, and, I'm, and this has been very informative. I'm fairly certain we've got a, quite a few physician leaders uh, who listen to healthcare rounds. If somebody needs to find you or, or reach out, what's the best way to, to get in touch? Sure. You can always, our website is just concerthealth.io, little uh, web form there that'll get right to us and we'll reach out promptly. Uh, they can find uh, me uh, probably a little too online, uh, both on LinkedIn and Twitter, uh, SC Hutchins on Twitter, or just my name um, uh, on LinkedIn and, and folks can find me in either of those spots too. Terrific. Thanks again. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. From all of us at Darwin Research Group, thanks for listening. Healthcare Rounds is produced and engineered by me, Kim Ishudo. Theme music by John Marchica. Darwin Research Group provides advanced market intelligence and in-depth customer insights to healthcare executives. Our strategic focus is on healthcare delivery systems and the global shift toward value-based care. Find us at darwinresearch.com. See you next round.